Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Brendan Canning, a local musician, that's his formulation, who also ends up working on movies every now and then, including Lindsay Mackay's Wet Bum, Pavan Mundi's Diamond Tongues, and Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. He also composed the score for Bruce McDonald's The Tracy Fragments and appeared in The Time Traveler's Wife along with the other members of his alt-rock Canadian supergroup, Broken Social Scene. Or is it Canadian alt-rock supergroup? Either way, they're super. And with the band releasing their new album, Hug of Thunder, this Friday, July 7th, it felt like the perfect time to get him on the show. Brendan picked Melancholia, Lars von Trier's 2011 study of the end of the world as experienced by a depressed young woman named Justine who has the misfortune of getting married as a previously undiscovered planet bears down upon the Earth. Kirsten Dunst plays Justine, Alexander Skarsgård is her fiancé, Charlotte Gensberg is her impatient sister, Kiefer Sutherland is Charlotte Gensberg's husband, and they're all going to die. But before that, there's cake. Cake and profound depression. Oh, one more thing. Uh, it was very rainy in Toronto this spring, and at one point we just kind of had to stop and wait out the storm, which results in a pretty abrupt cut around 20 minutes in. Sorry if that's a little jarring, but, you know, it's not the end of the world. This is someone else's movie. I guess it was just the last thing I watched, and I, you know, re- really, and it was either that or Hell or High Water, which I haven't got around to watching yet. Okay. Other than, you know, a couple of people giving it strong recommendation. That's fine. Uh, and, you know, Melancholy is just, it's such a, it's just such a quirky film, you know, it's almost like when you throw the score in there, it just... It almost like sounds like Peter and the Wolf or something. Yeah, you actually. know, it's a very, it's like a fantasy. It's this weird, you know, even like it's built around a, you know, it's set in a castle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a fantasy film. Yeah, a bizarre fantasy film. Was this your first experience of it? Had you seen it before? Oh no, I'd seen it before. And had you seen it? Well, when did you see it first? Uh, the- theatrically, did you? I don't. I don't think I ever saw it. God, did I? Maybe I did. Maybe I saw it once in the theater, and then I DJed a party for E1, and then they sent me a bunch of uh, DVDs, so I watched it again, and then just recently, I was like, oh, my girlfriend was over. It's like, oh, let's, you know. She had never seen it, or never seen any Lars von Trier movie. Oh, maybe, except for uh, Elephant, I okay. think. So, oh, that's Gus Van Sant. Oh, that's Gus Van Sant. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Lars von Trier. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's like, oh, yeah, this one's... Uh, okay, so she had never seen any Lars von Trier. So, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have thrown it. Yeah, we watched it right before going to bed, which, you know, really <laughs> leads you into some disturbing dreams. Although then, some also then, you know, wake up, stay awake for 45 minutes, dwell on that, and then go back to sleep, and then have really interesting dreams. Like, I'm in the countryside somewhere, traveling across North America, and I'm in this gorgeous place where... You know, all these women are cooking up food, and there's, like, lots of mushrooms. I don't know, I just remember, like, mushrooms, a lot of mushrooms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway. Does that, this fascinates me, because I don't remember my dreams. Uh, I hadn't been lately, but after that evening, yeah, I did have a very, very good dream of on a road trip with my old band members. Yeah. Just, yeah. 
So is is your dreaming influenced by the thing you've just watched? I, well, I think because it was just such a grand sort of place that we had arrived that was really like non-existent, especially like I don't know, like because of my occupation, I have lots of traveling dreams where you sure. just end up places that don't exist, but you know they're sometimes incredible places. That's amazing. I yeah. had no experience with this at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I, my first experience of Melancholia was an 8.30 or 8.45 a.m. screening at TIFF. Ooh. It was the first day of the festival proper, and so there were, I don't know, five movies in a row that day. It was yeah. my first one, and it was a great way to start because it just it was the Lightbox one, that great big screen, mm-hmm. and you're hit with that opening sequence of slow-motion disaster yeah. imagery. Yeah, it's really... No dialogue. I know. It's no a structure. really interesting, like, especially, you know, my, you know, my girlfriend's much, you know, she's younger, and to throw a long sequence like that at someone who's never seen a Lars von Trier film mm-hmm. and just sort of know nothing about this film, and then all of a sudden you're hit with all these images, and she just sort of blandly said, oh, so I guess this is foreshadowing. <laughs> like, well... Yeah, I guess. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. And it's that Cassandra aspect of the movie, too, where you're, you spend the whole film trying to figure out if if Kristen Dunst's character is haunted by visions of if that's why she's depressed. I mean, that was my way in. I was trying to figure out if this stuff has been in her head all along. Yeah. She knows everything's coming to an end, and that's why she can't rouse herself to life. Yeah, well, she you know, she does intimate later on. Like, I, you know, I know things. Yeah. I'm talking about the number of jelly beans in the jar or whatever. Yeah. I don't. I think it was like 658 or 40. I, that's got to have some significance to something. Right, like, it can't I, just be a random number. Yeah, I'm not it's sure. It's like a prime or it's divisible by something. Yeah, it's something smart, I'm yeah. sure. Or it's the number of pills that Von Trier has counted out for himself. Because he, he has spoken about like how this movie emerged from his own depression and trauma. That it's his way of coping with right. his feelings. We might as well jump right into that. It, if it is a film about depression, it's an incredibly effective one. Yeah. Um, See, I'd never done any... Uh, not until right before I was coming over here, after listening to Sophia speak about uh, Dancer in the Dark in uh, a previous podcast of yours, uh, and it's like, okay, you know, I've heard so much about Lars von Trier, but I've never actually, you know, and of course, like, you know, the racist comments he made during cans and stuff, you know, and I never really investigated much until I finally, like, okay, Lars von Trier, racist, and, you know, see what comes up. <laughs> That's your search term. Yeah, that was my, and, uh... Must have been fun. Yeah, and just, like, because I had, you know, I had no, no real interest in the type of person he was other than, you know, like, seeing these strange films like The Idiots or whatever. Like, even mm-hmm. in Melancholia, like, there's that scene where... Dunst is like eating some yogurt or something or I don't know what she's eating and it was just like in the idiots where like girls like she's right. eating something and starts slobbering it and her father slaps her in the face and it's like oh okay he's on a theme here but yeah yeah I've just you know never been curious enough like even with like bands I like I'm just never curious enough about the individual behind it I'd rather just have that be you know, not part of the equation as right. to, to sway my judgment one way or the other experience the art yeah yeah i mean you know? it's the argument we always make for people who are problematic as as artists right like yeah polanski back in the news now trying to get his conviction overturned wants to come back to america yeah. 
it's not the rape so much as the whole flight from justice thing, which he seems to have missed. Like, that's the reason they won't let him back. It's that he fled. But any conversation of that is also, well, he did make Chinatown and Rosemary's Baby, so he's not a monster, or he understands monsters well enough to be an artist, or, like, this, that whole thing. Von Trier just seems deeply invested in being an asshole. Yeah. But, but people, you know, I don't, mm. I don't know if Miles Davis was such a nice guy either. Apparently not. Yeah. yeah. Well, I read a biography. <laughs> but it's a thing, right? Like, it's the kind of thing that when I watch his movies, I try not to think about whatever brutalization he's doing to his his actors or, or how he's getting these performances. You, if yeah. the movie is working, you shouldn't be thinking about that. So. Yeah, I'm never, you know, never, ever thinking about that just because, you know, I play in a band. It's like, yeah, sometimes your bandmates are dicks. <laughs> or, you know, sometimes whoever they are you know, mm. can be unreasonable individuals and you're just... Whatever, whatever makes good music in the end. Yeah. Sometimes it's worth it. It's a weird place to watch the movie from, though, because you're watching, as with most of his more recent stuff, you're just watching emotional brutality and misery mm-hmm. for the purposes of entertainment. But in Melancholia, I, I'm not a fan of Dancer in the Dark. I, uh, I'm i not a fan of, of Nymphomaniac. They felt a little self-indulgent, more than a little self-indulgent. But yeah. with Melancholia... I never saw Nymphomaniac, but I just remember watching Dancer in the Dark and the two women I was with watching it. And, you know, I was, you know, it was very sad, but then I looked over at them and they were just crying, oh, bawling so hard. I was like, yeah, I guess it is pretty sad. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah. With Melancholia, know. it seems to have... It all seems to work to me for some to some larger end. It feels more powerful or it seems to to land with me I guess yeah. well I didn't miss out on some comedy in there too mm. you know like the, the first w- hour is basically a comedy of manners at a, at a country yeah mass. like like Kiefer Sutherland is pretty hilarious you know just you know even right down to when she's take you know in the second act when she, you know her, her sister's trying to get Justine to take a cab and it's like don't worry honey, we'll we'll take care of it we'll take care of it and you know he's in the back and saying we'll see about that yeah. you know, or the wedding planner every time the wedding planner walks by you know he like has his hand guarded because he refuses to look at Kirsten Dunst so I mean stuff like that it's pretty funny yeah I think anyway I laughed I mean if the if the world is going to end it's a very enjoyable apocalypse movie yeah as, as they go yeah I did google the the ant steel breaker thing. I tried to get, but I didn't quite yeah. get why it was. I think it's just something he likes. I think yeah. a lot of the movie could be boiled down to he wanted to use that. Yeah. Like it's a phrase or, or a thing or a sound. Um, what was it? Oh, uh, weirdly enough, Hawksley Workman uh, and I had a Twitter conversation once where we were talking about lyrics or he was talking about this one turn of phrase and I because I butted in and just said, oh, I like this one that you did also. Yeah. And he said that he doesn't know where they come, he doesn't care what they mean, he just likes the way they sound, yeah. that the, the phrasing is all that matters. Yeah. And I get that with this. Like, this, sure. came, that came to mind watching Melancholia, because it feels like, how can I put it, it's an intuitive narrative, like, I get why this is happening, I understand it, even though there's no rational explanation for half the stuff that happens, both cosmic and personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, there may, there may be nothing behind it other than yeah, the way the syllables come out. Yeah, yeah. This is how it wanted to happen. Yeah, yeah. I like it though. Ants, yeah. ants, steel breaker. 
It doesn't make any sense, but oh, it sounds... It sounds cool. Yeah, and the name of the planet being Melancholia, previously undiscovered world yeah. of sadness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that in itself is pretty funny. Yeah. I but, mean, if you're going to look at it in yeah, but, com- comedic terms. And also, if you're taking it straight as the, the onset of depression, it feels like, supposedly, I've never experienced clinical depression, but... Yeah from everything I've read, it's apparently a weight pressing, you know, like it's something that you can't stop coming from the outside that destroys you. Yeah. And so a planet sized depression for Von Trier makes perfect sense. Cause that's how he would see his own yeah. issue. That's when it becomes less funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as being, you know, someone who, yeah, I'll experience sadness, but yeah, as far as clinical depression, I can't definitely been in the thick of it but not personally Mm -hmm. so but being in the thick of it is quite an overwhelming sensation sometimes yeah i mean there's it's the nature of empathy right you can understand what it must be like yeah the metaphor that he comes up with is it's ingenious in a weird way and yeah a, a unique and idiosyncratic way which is him like that's sure that's totally what i get I, well the fact that you know it's coming closer no it's going further away now it's really close yeah. no no yeah it's but it's still sort of painted in this you know, this yeah it's just a fantasy world mm-hmm. everything's really beautiful everything's really expensive yeah so it's how many you know how many holes on our golf course 18. But then there's like the one where, oh, the, they the show the flag. Yeah. 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 According to the IMDb, he says that that means limbo. But I think he might have just been saying that to get someone to stop asking him. Yeah. With Montreux, there's... It's... it's Like, this is what's so fascinating to me about his filmmaking. There are simple explanations that you can just look at in-universe and think, oh, this is happening because of this thing that happened 10 minutes ago. Right. But it's also possible that he just decided to throw this thing in. Why does the fox talk in Antichrist? Right. Why is it eating its own maggoty body? Well, you want to build a fox, that's what you're going to do. Yeah, I got to see Antichrist. Or maybe not, I don't know. I mean, I just watched Melancholia, so I'm I'm good for a minute or two. Yeah. Uh, Antichrist is... When did that come out? uh, 2009, maybe? Or eight? It was the one before Melancholia. Oh, okay. That's how I I relate to him with One Up, One Down, I I think. I like every other one of his films. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I like The Boss of It All, and then Antichrist came out, and then uh, then Melancholia. Yeah. Yeah. And then Infomaniac. Yeah. But he's he's a fascinating filmmaker because he creates these incredible textures and then rejects them half the time. You know, like you've got all the wedding stuff that's only really in the first two thirds of the movie because then it just boils away because it's not important anymore. Yeah, it's about the isolation that these characters are feeling. Well, yeah, the we- the wedding is really puzzling on a lot of levels because there's just who are all the guests? Yeah. There's no, there's no story about any of that. You just sort of, you just, you know, suspend your belief, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or why are, is, is, are they two or three hours late? You know, where was the cer- I guess the ceremony must have been in the village. Presumably. Presumably. Yeah. Somewhere in the, it might have been on top of a car, for all we know. We, yeah. We don't experience But then, it. why, you know, yeah, the whole thing, it's like, kind of starts out yeah it just starts out sort of like slightly comedic but really uncomfortable like that limo 
just trying to make all yeah, the turns yeah, yeah. and stuff. It's just like, it's, it's excruciating. Yeah, like right off the bat, you just like want them to not be in that limo at whatever cost, and then you know they all take a crack at trying to yeah. drive the car, and you know it could be seen as comedic, but it's anything but comedic, I guess. Yeah. It's funny until you're in it. I think that that's what that's what the movie does right away. We are in that place with those people instead of just watching them. It's yeah. not an observational comedy. Because I, I thought that's where, what he was going for as well. Yeah. At first, oh, the title's going to be ironic. And then the first nine minutes of misery and galactic misery that you see with these nightmares and these visuals that just yeah. don't make sense and are so painful yeah. to watch. And then you're back into this handheld silliness, which then isn't silly anymore. Yeah, that's in the, a lot of the... You know, some of the camera work is just so, like, shaky. Mm -hmm. Well, we've been doing that for decades. Yeah. Um, And it's mean. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I don't know what sort of sensation it gives you, but it's definitely, like, one of claustrophobia, for sure. I had a couple of friends who got motion sick at it. Um, Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think it was Kiva Reardon who... Was it Kiva? Um, Somebody tweeted a photograph that they had added at the Varsity... Uh, a sign that says this film is very, very nauseating. You, you, they had to put it up once it opened. Right. Uh, you may get sick. And she tweeted the photo and said, yep. Oh and it's, God. yeah, I'm not susceptible to that sort of thing. No. I mean, I didn't, you know, you know, once again, you know, my girlfriend was like, the camera work is really hard to take. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, and or she or she just said, Yeah, it's a very interesting choice to make it make it so shaky. I said, like, Yeah, I guess never really thought about it, but yeah. Yeah. His he's been doing that. His first three films were so um elegant. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess really Europa sort of peaked right. with this beautiful steady cam widescreen framing and then he almost immediately sort of rebelled and, and made Breaking the Waves and Dancer in the Dark and just high-end, tiny cameras. Um, I think Breaking the Waves was shot... Yeah, it was shot on film, but it was it was a nightmare of steady camera. Or not even steady camera, it was just that, handheld everything. How many chapters? Like, divided into seven chapters was Breaking the Waves? Breaking the Waves has chapter headings, yeah. Yeah, and all, like... Like, there's a Deep Purple song... Oh, um, there's all that are like there's one one version has life on Mars at the end, and the other one had it replaced. But there's but there's songs there's for movie. each. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I remember like before, I, I worked on that Paul Schrader film, The Canyons. And, mm-hmm. You know, they were saying, "Oh, you really like saw the canyons as you know in chapters like Breaking the Waves." And I watched Breaking the Waves. And I was like, uh, I just read the script for The Canyons. I don't know how this is gonna be in any way comparable to that film I but I uh, don't see the connection no there wasn't and the chat the whole chapter thing you know yeah. I just was like oh wait till these emails go away because that's not going to happen I guess like, I mean Schrader's a very religious filmmaker like he's a he's always been really aggressive in his conversation about you know like with Taxi Driver is, is a kind of passion and then he made yeah. the last wrote the last temptation of Christ yeah. with I could sort of see Breaking the Waves appealing to him that way but because it's ultimately a, a story of martyrdom, but yeah. I don't see the canyons as a story of martyrdom. No, I'd, yeah, it's more just, tra- I guess the only comparison, you know, a whole slew of tragic characters. Mm-hmm. Mainly that's, yeah, you know, whether you've got 
Kirsten Dunst or Charlotte Gainsbourg or Kiefer Sutherland or either Skarsgård in it. Wait, is yeah. it his son? It is his son. Yeah, it's yeah. and son, the two Skarsgårds. I think it's the only time they've appeared together. Yeah. I guess the son is maybe the... I guess he's the least tragic because at least he's getting out. Yeah. And he's a young guy. He'll... Yeah. It's funny. I mean, you can say he gets out, but everybody dies, so... Oh, yeah. Where do true, you go, true, right? Yeah, it's... yeah. I forgot about that. The planet <laughs> crushes everyone. Or, or, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I always... I mean, I am fascinated by apocalypse movies that don't come at it directly, that take the other option, you know, as opposed to the scenes where the government is wondering what to do and the scientists are making warnings and the three heroes ultimately come together in the third act of that stuff we've seen that since the 50s probably and yeah melancholia doesn't feel like an end of the world movie even though the world is ending from the beginning and we yeah. watch i think just because you know you've got these scenes of riding horses shot from really high above you know that give it give you know the sort of majesty mm-hmm. of the whole castle and everything it's just like so majestic yeah that sort of make you forget that it's a film about you know, depression and the end of the world. Yeah. Well, what you had said before about how it has fantasy aspects, I never really thought about them that way. But yeah, it is just the the score. It's really it really makes you think of. You know, that's the first. I don't know why Peter and the Wolf came to mind, but hmm. that's sort of what's Prokofiev. It's the playfulness of the of the writing, right? Like you know, it knows it's self aware in its storytelling. Yeah, and you know the Kiefer and Charlotte's son there. You know, he mm-hmm. sort of that helps with the the playfulness, I guess. Yeah. Just a young boy, and you know, even right to the very end, building the, you know, the little the little cave, whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It will save no one. Yeah, it's that strange austerity. Everything's so beautiful, and everything's so appointed and expensive, and carefully created and none of it means anything yeah like that that could be a metaphor for filmmaking too if you want to take it that far like no matter what you try to do something else will come along and derail or destroy you yeah i just wonder what it's like to conceive of something like this and then sell it to people get the get the actors on board get people involved i was thinking that too you know because uh oh who's her father uh John is it John Hurt? No, I think it might be. Um, but you know, what do you tell? Yeah, it's like what yes, do you, John Hurt. Yeah, I mean, what do you tell everyone in the film? Like, how do you describe this film? I mean, it's really like the, especially the like the wedding, like the wedding speeches, just like so so classic. Like the mom is just so biting and. <laughs> Well, the mom is a real. I, I'm not. What's her name? Let's get. Sorry. That's <laughs> no, okay. We can look it all up. Because she, uh, she is a. You know, she turned in a great performance. Charlotte Rampling, isn't it? What's that? Is it Charlotte Rampling? Yeah, there she is. Oh wait. Unless oh. I'm wrong, Charlotte Rampling plays. Oh, Charlotte Rampling. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's Pittsburgh's right. mother. Yeah. Two Charlottes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Charlotte Rampling. Yeah, because. You know when the the younger Skarsgård goes to give you know his wedding speech, like I'm not very good at you know, said Justine's always better at speeches. It's like, well, why don't you let her talk? You know, mm-hmm. just 
two champagnes too many. Yeah, you know, they just really nail like the the tension of the family and just how they all ended up in this sort of fucked up place, I guess. And yeah. you know, she's sort of you know, Dunst is saying how she's, you know, Mom, I'm really scared. You know, I'm really scared. It's like, I would be too, darling. Run, you know, run as fast <laughs> as you can away from here. Yeah. It's yeah. it's the kind, yeah, it's the, that sort of thing is... Oh, that was a question, too. Like, why does she have, why is she American, but everyone else, like, her parents oh, right. are British. Else is English. But Charlotte's English, too. So maybe mm-hmm. she went away. Maybe the husband and wife broke up went and he went to America and met because you never hear his younger wife talking that's in the true film. So, and then you know maybe it's like Kirsten was you know four years old or five years old and went to go live with your father in America right maybe. I love the way movies can always handle that stuff or they refuse to acknowledge it entirely yeah there's a whole bunch of stuff that it doesn't but you know, at the same time, you just have to suspend your belief and, like, this is what's happening. Yeah, this is who these people are. Yeah. It's like There's Swedish people, there's... Yeah, you don't see the f- any friends of the bride or the groom or any interaction at mm-hmm. any point in the film. Oh, yeah. I just assume they couldn't afford to come out to this thing wherever it is, that her friends don't make the same money or aren't covered there just there feels like an it feels like an aristocratic remove doesn't it like everything in the film yeah. is happening away from the rest of the world yeah and these people are operating in a different bubble yeah which you know adds to the the fantasy aspect of the film again mm-hmm. you know it's just like oh i don't know this is just the way the story is yeah. you're not it's not a typical you know you don't see his parents at any point in the film no nope. so yeah it felt like i was thinking of stuff like Bunuel maybe um, the the isolation in his films where a group of people gather for mm-hmm. a thing and that's the only world we ever see but the absurdity of those movies you know people sit or Le Grand Bouffe where people sit down to this oh, great buffet it's not a Bunuel film I can never remember the director's name um, oh Marco Ferreri okay yeah what's the film where everyone does have this most incredible meal because Louis Prima is supposed to be coming. Oh, Big Night. Big Night. Big Night. I love that. That just made me think of that. Magnificence of Big Night. Love Mm. that. Just watched that again a couple of years ago with people who had made a timpani for dinner. Oh, yeah? Yeah, our friends Patchen and Andrea and it it was magnificent and decadent and Mm. everything you needed to be. And then you watch Big Night and just remember how good that movie is. Oh, yeah. Which is on the verge of being lost, I think. I believe it's out of print because it was hard to find the DVD. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I had one, of course. Of course. Uh, but uh, <laughs> they were saying we couldn't we couldn't find one to rent it and it's like, I'll bring mine. But, um, yeah, that's yeah. A great film. no Blu-ray release. It's almost, huh. it's in danger of being forgotten. It's one of those little indies that Sony put out on disc in the late 90s that they yeah. didn't have the rights to theatrically. So those video rights have lapsed. Huh. Who directed that? Um... Uh, Stanley Tucci and um, Campbell Scott, I believe. Oh yeah, huh. yeah, they directed it themselves. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, Tucci still owes me an interview. He bailed on me. Oh right. A tip that year. <laughs> yeah, Stanley, if you're listening. <laughs> I just love the. I mean, one of the scenes I remember the most of that film is just the next day. They just like. Oh, the omelet scene. Yes, making eggs. Yeah, one take. Yeah. And it says everything. It no dialogue. Just. Oh yeah. Just beautiful. Nice bread. Yes. Yes. I mean, you assume it's a nice bread. It would got to be. Yeah. It would have to be. Yeah. Yeah. I I have a feeling that film that has little to do with melancholia. 
Well, but it, <laughs> well, I guess uh, it weirdly does though, because as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, that is the end of their world. Yeah, right? like it is another yeah. film about yeah. the end of things. Yeah, it's just it's definitely loss. Yeah, and if if Melancholia had ended without the planet destroying it, if it was simply a means to make people think about the rest of their lives, it yeah. would still be just as valid, I think. Yeah, because it's about the mistakes and the choices and the deliberate choices that you make. Yeah, I mean, a wedding is sort of the biggest choice someone can make in their life. Yeah. And to have everything else spiral out of that decision and then be invalidated by the end of everything. Yeah. Is sort of <laughs> like that's the ultimate story, isn't it? That's yeah, maybe so. Pure storytelling. Yeah. Pure narrative. Yeah. I don't know. And the I, fact that the <laughs> their marriage lasts less than that's true. six it's hours, presumably. Even that. I, one thing I really like is the fact that there seems to be the concept of time on the on the wedding night seems to just be like all over the yeah, place yeah, yeah. just like i thought they were going to bed now oh no the party's still going it's like what time is it the car rolled in two hours late the wedding planner is just you know averting his gaze every time he walks by kirsten dunst yeah. uh it's that moment in a real event where it should be over but people won't leave and you don't know if you're upset about that or just enjoying it yeah it's yeah it felt the searching for the tagline too that's such a oh that's right yeah like that's just the I guess maybe that's just a you know maybe Lara's just saying it's like Keep it's all playing. people all people want they just want a tagline they just want to package it up neatly and have everything be perfect and I like that you know yeah you never get it. You'll never get it. You'll never get it, and you'll die trying. Yeah. And it's, it's so... I I don't know why I'm not more upset watching that film. It's a joyful end of the world. It's a, it's a pleasant experience to watch these people suffer, which I think is what Von Trier does. Yeah. He makes it, if not emotionally entertaining, then cinematically alive. Yeah. In a way that keeps me coming back. Well, maybe, you know, you get glimmers of, you know, such a... You know, a seemingly warm relationship between Kiefer and and his son. Mm-hmm. You know, and even though like Kiefer's end is predictable, I guess you know, yeah. as being the staunch, hard nosed, rich guy who just you know is chastising Charlotte for uh, you know buying a bunch of pills, yeah. and then ultimately it's like, oh, let's see, is he really is, and what's gonna happen with that jar of pills? Yeah. It's, uh, it's not even a MacGuffin. No. It's just the coward's way. Is it the coward's way out or the scientist's way out, the logical way out? I don't know. I, again, it's one of those things where you... Penn and Teller did this thing on Apocalypses once on, on their show Bullshit, yeah. uh, where they just punctured the idea of prepper culture by saying, look, if something that big happens, you're almost certainly going to be dead in it. That's, right. that's what's going to happen. We're not preparing for the apocalypse because we will probably not survive the first wave. Right. A planet hitting another planet... I don't imagine there was going to be a lot of time no. to take that in. No. And so when we find Sutherland, when that story is resolved, it feels like I was pissed off at him. I was annoyed. I wasn't... Oh, the fact that he... Yeah. That he chooses the way out. I think it's because he has a family and it just seems weird to go out before your kid. Yeah. But that's, his... But. Yeah. But then you think, well, he was kind of an asshole. He was sort of... Yeah. That's kind of what you do if you're a jerk. It's selfish. And, yeah, and he's just like, uh, 
she'll explain it to him. I mean, we're all going to be, we're going to be dead. And so long. like, does it really matter? Yeah. Like we literally have, you know, six or eight hours left or 12 or however long it, it is. Yeah. So I guess, you know, at that point, it's like, it really doesn't matter. Whatever he does. Mm. Is, is he going to be judged in the afterlife because of that one move? I don't know. Yeah. I was wondering if it was, if it's von Trier's commentary somehow on his own depression. It's like, by the time someone does kill themselves to make this stop, we're mad at that character. We're annoyed with it. So it's that what you write when you come out of something that dark and you yeah. can see the way forward? Or is it just... This is a like if if you know the argument goes all characters are facets of the writer. Yeah. Does that mean this is the part of him that wouldn't have made it? I'm just you know you want yeah, to yeah maybe he but. yeah he probably just you know just uh, merely just, uh, did he even consider any proselytizing here? But yeah, I suppose he's just saying it's like well people hate me anyway. Like what the fuck does it matter? You yeah. know, it's like if I kill myself, people are like yeah he was a fucking dick. Yeah, it's true. It's, you know, now people say when you die, it's if you have an Oscar or an Oscar nomination, that's the first line of the bio. With Von Trier, it'll be Lars Von Trier, who was banned, who's the first person to be declared persona non grata at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. So you might as well have fun. Well, you just can't be throwing around a Nazi term. I can't like it's something to joke about. It's so weird, though. I get it. I get how uncomfortable he can be in these situations. His explanation was... And you know what? Oh yeah, I read the loving, explanation. Yeah, yeah. If loving Wagner makes me a Nazi. Well, I guess Hitler had some good ideas or something like that. You know, don't say that into a microphone. Yeah, even, but, even you when know, you're kidding. Yeah, but yeah, it's just. But if I thought it, then I have to say it. Exactly. You know, it's like okay, but I guess that you know that's whatever that makes. It's who he is. Yeah, it's who he is. Whatever. That's how you we know. get this. Yeah. Uh, so potentially a difficult part of the podcast, but how. Have you incorporated or, or absorbed or, or riffed on or borrowed any element of this? Is it anywhere in your creative DNA? Uh, specifically, does it ever come up? Does it is it something you you've used? I mean, it's an easier question for filmmakers because you know you can visually quote something or you can lean back on something. Has is there? I mean, is there a song that deals with the theme? Have you oh, found no, yourself I, thinking? No, because I don't. I mean, I think my thing is just so different than what this which is probably why you know I'm drawn to something like this because it's just it's outside not, you. yeah it's just not my wheelhouse mm-hmm. at all and I you know I, I'm not a classical composer um, and you know the, the tunes like whether it's social scene or whether it's my own stuff I mean it's way more dreamy and idealistic I think and I don't know if uh, idealistic isn't the first thing that comes to mind when I think of melancholia or the idiots or... It's funny, though, when I think about some of Broken Social Scene stuff, there's a crescendo thing, uh, a repeated crescendo or or an idea of building to an explosion that does make me think of the construction of of this and maybe the beginning of Antichrist, which you haven't seen, so... But again, similarly, the, the I guess there's like, they're, they're like sweets. Yeah, I guess you know, and we definitely, I guess, are, you know, for lack of a better word, it's like deconstructionists sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll make something that could be really pretty and try and wreck it a little bit, and then try and make it pretty again, or you know, sort of wrestle with a lot of different ideas and pushing and pulling that mm-hmm. comes from 
having a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, I guess uh, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just the, ma- the the question of getting all the way through something to the end, coming out the other side. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, it doesn't. I still I still like to think that we fill a much. I mean, there's positivity be, to be taken from this film, but it's mainly, you know, it's. I mean, it's positivity because it's, uh, you know, like you said, it's an enjoyable film to watch, even though it's. Yeah. This film about, you know. The end of all. The end of all and overwhelming depression. Whereas I think, you know, with our group, we're trying to combat that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you got to have. You gotta have the yin and yang, I suppose. So, yeah. if you can see the darkness, you can identify it, and then yeah, you know and what then, the light is. Yeah, right. Yeah, basically. I mean, at the very base level, that's a good way of good way of looking at it. Yeah, and nobody hates you guys at press conferences, which is always a plus. Yeah, no one said anything too off color, which is fortunate. <laughs> I mean, I just think <laughs> we're. I'd like to think a probably quite a different individual than ours on sure. I should hope so. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I also haven't made these films and haven't been banned by cans, but then, you know. Well, you're young. Yeah. There's, There's still time. time. There's still time to get banned. <laughs> banned from cans. Oh. It's a good title for something. Yeah. It'll probably be his autobiography or his, uh, the biopic they make of him. Right. Oh, yeah, who would make his biopic? Uh, Other than Herzog. He's left, yeah. Herzog would, Herzog would be amazing. Yeah. I look upon him and see only cruelty. It applies <laughs> to everything. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> funny. It's a good impression. Yeah, thanks, I've had years. Yeah, to I bet. <laughs> uh, did you... Actually, I should ask, um, is, the, is the new album different from the older ones in any way? Are you guys moving in a new direction? Is there something... Uh. Yeah, I think it's, you know, different. I think it's got to be, I mean, it's got to be different because it's, you know, from the first thing when Kevin and I got together, that was in 2000, that's 17 years ago. And then You Forgotten People was a couple years later and we're very different people at that point. You know, yeah, every, every album just signifies a different chapter. Mm -hmm. So, but there's always going to be, you know, I think when you put, bands together and bands generally sound like a band whether it's broken social scene or the who or the shins Mm -hmm. or you know the runaways or you know whoever i mean you put individuals in a room together something's going to get spat out and there's going to be some common ground that gets reinterpreted over the years or gets retold but there's still something recognizable about it yeah. So, yeah, I think there's something there's something very recognizable about Broken Social Scenes music, but this record, I mean, you, know, you don't want to talk too much about an album that's not even out and there's really only one single that's been released, but you know, it seems like people are on board with the mm-hmm. new song. No, by the time they hear this, the the album will Oh, yeah, yeah. Them, but so. yeah, that's true. That's true. So, uh is there a favorite? Is there something you want to tell people to listen for? Uh God, I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a whole body of work to try and single out one song. I just don't. We're not really. A, we've never really been a big singles band. I mean, we've been kind of an indie singles. We've had like lots of like indie hits. Yeah. 
or maybe not lots, but we've had a handful of indie hits. Oh, Anthem keeps recurring, I would say. Like it's yeah, that song. Yeah, that song has always been you know really good for us, and you know, Lover's Spit or Cause Equals Time or you know any of these songs that have been used in films or otherwise that just continue to be liked and we continue to play them and still enjoy playing them so that's something yeah you know, it would be a terrible thing to have a batch of tunes that you're like oh man i've had it with this song yeah. i mean yeah you have to put certain songs on on the shelf for a little bit of time but yeah. that fascinates me about about musicians people who like Springsteen who does four hour shows and plays everything every time or some mixture of everything like yeah. there's no period he doesn't go back to there's no part of himself that isn't still on display mm-hmm. but he must you know, like Billy Joel's gotta be tired of Piano Man it's one of those things right it's, there have but to does be he play it every time I think he has to does he or some version of it it gets well I guess Billy Joel's a poor example because he mean, was locked into that specific cycle like he has to play the hits yeah but he's got so many hits that's yeah, true and he's also plays Madison Square Garden yeah like once four shows a... every year right or something no like once a month really I thought it was like a quarterly thing I think I think it's a once a... someone told me and I looked it up yeah I think he's playing once a month I mean like a... god you go out and you have like you play your song and Sixteen or seventeen thousand people are on their feet screaming. I mean, I guess you'd want to do that. How? How? Like, I don't. I don't know if that feeling would ever go away. Like, if you had a song that big, like, why would you not want? You know, that applause and like. I mean, it feels good. I can't imagine like writing songs that big. Like, I don't know what that feels like, but. You know, on our level, like it feels good when people are cheering when you're yeah. playing a familiar song. So that level of familiarity, I mean, that's you know, next, next, next level. Yeah. I wonder if Untrier gets people calling out for him to do the oldies. Uh, <laughs> go, go back to dogma. Go back to because yeah. he seems to be at war with himself stylistically, in that he evolves and then snaps back. You know, like he sort of tried to write off the Dogma 95 movement. He yeah. said he's never actually made one, but then there's the Idiots. So he did, but... He... Idiots is such a... That's like... I remember watching that just thinking like, what the, fuck? <laughs> what the fuck is this movie? That is the appropriate response. I saw that at a TIFF press screening where half the people in the room clearly had never seen one of his movies before. Yeah. They had no idea how to process it. I think I've seen all of his movies at TIFF press screenings, actually. Yeah. The exception of Antichrist. I missed that. I had to catch up to it later. You were saying how early you saw uh, Melancholia, like at 8.45. Oh, yeah, it must have been 8.30 or 8.45. Yeah, yeah I think show. the only film I've seen really early was like 10 o'clock or 9.30 or 10 was Train Spotting. Ah. <sighs> like on, on Young Street. Oh, wait, were you there? Yeah. The, the 10 a.m., the press screening of Train Spotting? Yeah. The one at, uh, at the Uptown? Yeah. I was there. Yeah. Oh, That's yeah. the earliest film I'd ever. And God, that you came out of it on a high, though. Oh, I think, that was so great first thing in the morning. Yeah, and, well, I think at that point we were, you know, we were young guys. We were yeah. smoking, smoking weed at nine thirty. <laughs> you know, I was not doing that. No. Yeah, oh we man. Were, uh, we were just talking about Trainspotting a couple of weeks ago because the sequel had come out. Oh yeah, I haven't. Uh, not quite ready for the sequel. It's it's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah, they found the way in, and it turns out that the half the movie. How can I put this without 
well, I won't spoil it. This will come out in July. It'll be, yeah. Half the movie is about how you can't make a sequel to Trainspotting, about how it's impossible to do that to do that again. And well, that's it. that's. I think that's the only way to do it. Yeah. I think they must have figured that out. It's like, come on, what are we gonna do? Like retell 1996 because they, a local production tried to do Ecstasy. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. I know I had a friend in it, and you know they were asking for one of my solo songs. For no month, like zero dollars. Right. But just yeah. remember, like you're offering like zero, like literally no money for the song, and how's it gonna benefit my career? Right, exposure. Yeah, people expo- die of exposure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm gonna remember that I one. Wish it's not mine. I wish I can remember who said it. God. I saw that a couple of years ago. I'm, I thought well, I'm never forgetting that. I'm gonna take some ownership on that one. Yeah, you should do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I got asked it. Someone said, "Hey, can I pass your number along for a DJ gig?" I just said, "Sure." And, after this five-minute spiel, I just said, so let me get this straight. I'm coming out there to DJ for free? Yeah. It's like, you know I'm in my 40s, right? <laughs> like, you know, I you know, I got a semi-famous band. Like, you couldn't find someone else, like, in their 20s? Yeah. Anyway. No. And free is something that you, free is something that you should choose to do, not that other people should expect from you. Yeah. That's, that's like my I'm DJing goal. a cystic fibrosis. Charity gala on Saturday. There you go. I'm not going to take any money, but that's my choice. Exactly. I'm not sure what these people's anyway. Yeah. Exposure. You can die. That's funny. <laughs> my thanks to Brendan Canning, who you can hear on the new Broken Social Scene album, Hug of Thunder, this Friday, July 7th. And if you're hearing this before then, why not check out some of his solo stuff? I really like his 2013 album, You Got's to Chill, and 2008 Something for All of Us is pretty good too. You can find Brendan on Twitter at CanningB, all one word, just the letter B, and you can find Melancholia on Blu-ray and DVD from Magnolia Home Entertainment in the United States and Entertainment One in Canada. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. It might even keep the earth spinning a little bit longer. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.